Welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. The podcast where we mix a sometimes weird but always delicious cocktail of theology, philosophy, and spirituality. Hello, friends, and welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. I'm excited to be with you today. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about mostly. And I'm excited about what we're going to drink today. So, Kyle, could you just <laughs> tee it up for us, please? Yeah, so our topic for today is evangelicalism. Praise the Lord. Uh, this is something that Randy and I have been talking about for a long time. It's something I think we've both been wrestling with for a long time. We, until fairly recently, would both have confidently described ourselves as evangelicals. Whether we still would or not is going to be part of our conversation uh, so we're going to talk about the the good, the bad, and the ugly of what it means to be an evangelical in the United States. Oh, boy. Well, I could use a good drink to talk about evangelicalism <laughs> in the United States as it currently sits. So, Kyle, what are we drinking today? Today we have Willet Pot Still Small Batch Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Now, that's just the normal Willet, correct? Yeah, you, you yeah. It comes in a... in a Pot Still Small Batch. I know, I know. That's just what it says on the label. It comes in a funny-shaped bottle that kind of looks like a pot still. Uh, so it's, it's a very great recognizable. bottle. Yep. It is. It's a good-looking bottle. It's very recognizable it on the like shelf. looks like some sort of drug paraphernalia. I've always <laughs> it, <laughs> it does. does. It look like a bottle. Could, that bottle. <laughs> yeah, you, you could definitely smoke something out yeah. of it, I'm sure, if you wanted to. Uh, so this comes in at 47% alcohol by volume. It is a straight bourbon whiskey, which means it's aged for at least two years in new oak barrels. Uh, and it's delicious. Man, I get, this could just be the glass, but I really think, I get a lot of barn in the nose here. Hmm. A lot of dusty, oh yeah, major old du- musty books, like dusty books, yep. dusty library, dusty. and barn. Like old wood, prefab wood. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's very specific. <laughs> yeah. All right, now I'm going to just, <laughs> that was just the nose, I'm going to taste it now. I mean, to me, it's a punch in the face of vanilla. I was just going to say. Some black yeah. pepper on the back end. Nice. All right. Yep. A little spicy, but not too much. I get the vanilla. I get cherries. Yep. Cinnamon. Air flavor. Mm-hmm. Cinnamon. Cinnamon. Uh, yep. Yes. A good, for me, a good bourbon slash a good whiskey, but particularly bourbon, is when the front of your palate or the front of your tongue is different than the middle and the back of your palate. Mm. Yeah. When that's yeah. complex enough to actually do something and have different descriptors, that's, I'm having fun then. Mm-hmm. Yep, vanilla hits yep. first. It's like it's more cloves on the back. Uh, it, for me, I, I feel like that's the the taste that stays in my mouth hmm. for a while. We apologize to all you non whiskey geeks, <laughs> but I'm no, having good fun. <laughs> that's where there's a fast forward button on your on your app. Um, this bourbon used to be really easy to find. I, I guess it's not so easy to find anymore. Um, it some, comes in somewhere around the forty dollar mark. I think comparable to. Other mid-range bourbons? Yeah, I'd say that's a great $40 whiskey myself. I'd have to think hard and have them side-by-side side if I like Willet or Woodford to me. Mm-hmm. We're going to need to get some Woodford side-by-side. Side. All right. <laughs> hey, we should. Cool. All right. Well, cheers, boys. A good one. Cheers. Evangelicalism is a hot-button topic in our world today, particularly among people who are maybe on the first half of life, 40 and under, um, there's a lot of hand-wringing over it. There's a lot of anger over evangelicalism. There's a lot of protection and defensiveness when it comes to talking about evangelicalism. And there's a lot of people 
a lot of people who grew up in within evangelicalism who want nothing to do with it. And in many ways, because of evangelicalism, want nothing do, to do with the church. They've written it off. Some of them have gone on to high church traditions, Catholic, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, you name it. But I would say many of them have become gone into this nun category where they're just, I'm done mm. with organized religion. It's Evangelicalism has ruined me for Christianity. And that's a, that's a loaded gun that we're talking about here. Something that some people say, because of that, I don't want anything to do with religion. And then some people who are clinging to it in, all, in, its, in its pure form or in their pure form and defending it. And they think defending evangelicalism equals defending the gospel, right? Which I mm-hmm. would totally disagree with. Kyle, can you just frame up this big umbrella that is evangelicalism a bit for us? Give us an overview Sure. And just to piggyback on what you said, there's another class of people who just don't know what to do with themselves. Like They're not willing to become the nun and they're not willing to exit into what you called the high Absolutely. church traditions. They just don't know where to go because there's nowhere yep. they fit. And so they sort of spin their wheels and are really, really unhappy. I know quite a few people like that. Um, Disgruntled within the movement, but don't yeah. know where, where, what their options are, correct? Yeah. yeah. Or they don't have any good options. Um, so... There's several different, I mean, it's one of those words where you drop it in a room and suddenly you've made enemies on all sides, right? Because it means so many different things to so many different people. Um, so to give some some clarity about what it is we're talking about here, we're both Americans. And so what we're going to be talking about is American evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. I say that because evangelicalism is older than uh, the American expression of it. It exists in other parts of the world today in very different ways than it does in the United States. Uh, and so that's not necessarily what we're talking about. But it's important to keep in mind that American Christians are a very small segment of Christians globally, and there are many uh, global Christians who would use the word somewhat differently from how Americans use it. Um, in the United States, it's almost become synonymous with a political voting block. So mm-hmm. when you read a poll from Barna or Pew or something like that, and they talk about evangelicals, what they mean is this this really sizable and politically powerful demographic that's mostly white that votes a particular way. Mm-hmm. And to, to extricate evangelicalism from that can be very, very difficult. So if we're going to talk about it, we're going to have to talk about both the spiritual aspects of it and also the political aspects of it, because these days they're, they're one entity. And it would be kind of dishonest of us to pretend that we could... We could just isolate one half of that and ignore the other half, which would be really nice to do, right? Uh, I personally wish I could ignore the political half and just focus in on the, the theological stuff, but it's not that simple. So we have to just admit it's aligned with, today in the United States, conservative politics, politics of the, the GOP, which itself is quite different than it was a couple decades ago. On the more theological or religious side, what does it mean to be an evangelical? Fortunately, here, there's a definition that's pretty widely accepted that we can appeal to. So there's this historian, I think he's British, named David Bebbington. And actually, he and an American historian named Mark Knoll have both written a lot about evangelicalism, trying to sort of locate it in the history of religious thought. And they just came out with a book together about evangelicalism and its place and actually its future. So I'm looking forward to reading that later this year. Yeah. But Bevington gave this, call it a definition, he set out four markers, I'm going to call them markers, of evangelicalism as a way to distinguish it from other 
historical religious movements. So he says there's four things that are kind of distinctive to evangelicalism. First, a kind of, he, he called it biblicism. So a strong emphasis on the Bible. Uh, now, the some evangelicals, of the Bible. yeah, the authority of the, authority, particularly in the sense of what should I believe about God, but also for most evangelicals, what should I believe about the world, and what should I believe about ethics? Really, what should I believe? Period. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when it comes to the Bible and biblicism, I would say this is a huge departure from this is a Protestant thing in many ways. Mm-hmm. I would say is that Catholics look at, to their main authority as tradition, mm-hmm. and evangelicals look to their main authority as the Bible. Yeah, Catholics don't even read the Bible. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, boy. That's a little jab to my Catholic friends, but I've had priests say that to me, so <laughs> I feel okay about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a huge, huge divergence. That's a, that's a major, major difference yeah. in what we give authority and weigh. And most of my Catholic, good Catholic friends and most of my good evangelical friends would say both of them, Catholics put too much weight into tradition, and evangelicals Mm. probably put too much weight into the scriptures. Now, if I said, if you're a good evangelical listening, you just put me in the heretic box, because you can't (laughs) put too much weight in scriptures. But But that's exactly what we're talking about. That attitude, that's biblicism. You you can't put too much weight on this. That's what what Bevington has in mind. Um, So that's the first identifier, or the first marker. The second is crucicentrism, which is just a big word that means a strong focus on the cross. So the death of Jesus is the most important aspect of Christianity, or the death and resurrection, let's put those together, of Jesus are the defining features of Christianity. That's what it's really all about. Let's let's make another nuance here. I would say good evangelicals with good theology would say the death and resurrection of Mm. Jesus is central. But I would say part of that not fully robust evangelical theology mm. really even leaves out the resurrection and just says it's all mm. about the cross yeah. in, not, in a non-healthy way, I would say. So, yeah, so there are, fair enough, there are some traditions that you could, you could sit in a church in that tradition for several years and not realize that the resurrection was that important, <laughs> but right. you'd, know, you'd, know a whole lot about, you'd know a whole lot about the crucifixion and sin. Um, definitely, fair point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's biblicism, crucicentrism. Third, we have conversionism. So this is the idea that you need to have a conversion experience. Born again. Um, yeah, to be born again, to use the scriptural language. You have to be one way, and then you make a decision, and you repent, and you have an experience, and then you're a different way. And right. that's how you enter into the church. That's put how, into guess, terms, how you stay in the church. Put into terms that I grew up with, did you invite Jesus into your heart? Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I invited Jesus <laughs> into my heart when I was eight years old at a Milwaukee Brewers baseball Christian mm-hmm. camp, and I remember kneeling on one knee, thinking about what a worm I was at eight years old, <laughs> invited Jesus into my heart, and I got to live forever. I was nine, so that's interesting. Uh, and I remember praying that conversion prayer three or four times to make sure that it, stu- that, that it stuck before I told it. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, you have to have this conversion. And sometimes those, you know, those conversion stories are very dramatic, and sometimes they're not. They happen when you're a kid. But the point is, uh, there has to be a point in your life when you acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and you devote your life to that. And yep. that's, your, Elliot, that's your conversion. As a good church boy in Pastorson, I would guess that you had the, the problem of your, a boring testimony where like, you grew up a Christian <laughs> and you didn't have that like, yeah, was, cool college story where you could... I was six, 
So yeah, if either of you need any spiritual guidance on your journey or whatever, just let yeah. I'm a little ahead and you can lean on me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm here thank for you. you. So that's the first three. Yeah, and then the last marker, uh, according to Bevington, is activism. This one's vague. It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, right now, it means political activism. That's what it means in the United States. Uh, it didn't always mean that, though. Um, it could be prior to the Civil War in the United States, it meant what we would now call social justice, yeah. um, caring for the poor and the downtrodden and the socially disenfranchised. doesn't yeah, mean I would that say that's so much the... anymore. I would say that's the beautiful roots of evangelicalism. Evangelicalism, mm-hmm. when it began, I'd be a card-carrying member, to be honest with you, with John mm-hmm. Wesley and the Methodists and the social justice movement mm-hmm. that was birthed out of there really is a huge part of the foundation of evangelicalism. It's beautiful. It's good. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. now, when you talk about social justice to most evangelicals, you're talking politically, you're talking a dirty word. Yeah. Social justice is like now a dog whistle for saying, oh, that's a liberal evangelical, so that you can write them off. Yeah, so it's changed dramatically in the mm-hmm. last um, 100, 150 years. Oh, um, and I think what another happens? aspect of this is, well, several things happen. We can talk about a few of those things. I mean, the war was one thing, and there was fundamentalism, which we've talked about in a separate episode, happened. A lot of things happened in culture that evangelicals felt they needed to react against. Probably the Enlightenment being possibly the biggest, right? Well, yeah, certain ways of looking at Scripture that were birthed in the Enlightenment, yeah. And so because of those ten, those trends in this broader society and because of the decisions that a lot of evangelicals at the time made to react against those things and to, I mean, they chose a couple hills to die on that they honestly shouldn't have chosen. And that started yep. a trajectory that led to what, where we're at today. Just imagine, though, for the first time actually right now as we speak, listeners, friends, community... We're sharing a moment of epiphany here. I actually understand a little bit. I feel like I'm, I'm, I can empathize with the evangelicals who reacted in the wrong way during the Enlightenment. When you're getting, you're used to a world in which science is just loose, theoretical, non-foundational world that it really doesn't have much matter when we're talking about truth. But then all of a sudden, with the boom of scientific discovery happening in the Enlightenment, all of a sudden people are saying, oh, we can actually see what's true based on science. Mm-hmm. And can, I can imagine where a church that's been used to being able to identify what's true based on the Bible, based on tradition, based on their, their ideas, now they're being challenged by science, and that's a very insecure moment. And mm-hmm. so now all of a sudden we have to react, right? That's usually where things go wrong, is where instead of responding, you actually react. And so now we have to react and say, no, this, what is in this book is scientific fact, right? Or fill in the blank. They went all sorts of different directions. But I actually get that. You know, like they're used to controlling the narrative. They're used to having the the lion's share of what it means to be, what something, if something's true or not. And all of a sudden that rug's getting swept up from underneath them and they panic. I get Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. But yet it gave birth to all sorts of funky theology and bad ways of looking at the scripture. And it makes you think, or it makes me think that if they had really honored the scripture as much as they claimed to, if their biblicism had been sincere, they might have noticed that it's written from the perspective of socially weak people. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. They're an oppressed people. Yeah, I mean, it's written from the perspective of social oppression. Yep. So to use it as a way to hold on to social power is pretty ironic. And what's Uh, what's, what's crazy is that the Bible actually never claims to be a book of science. 
No, never. <laughs> Literally, in, in science the, didn't exist when it was right. written. So. And the ancient people <laughs> had their science all wrong. So if we're taking mm-hmm. science from, from this book that's thousands of years old, whoa, we're going to have a weird science. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, we, and I it digress. Did. I mean, it turned out to be really weird and parochial and is to yep. this day. Yeah. Before we move on from this, I just wanted to say, like, another aspect, it seems to me, of activism, see if you agree with this, is a certain kind of evangelism, evangelism for the purposes of conversion, evangelism, it seems to me, not as an expert here, within evangelicalism, evangelism looks quite different than it does outside of evangelicalism. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I would say, I mean, evangelicals do evangelicalism, evangelism, I'm sorry, very poorly for the most part, but to their credit, they're one of the few traditions that actually do evangelism intentionally um, and hold it as a, as a value, I would say. Hmm. Or, or, well, they, I don't want to say, for example, that Catholics don't hold evangelism to be a value, but their approach to it seems very, very different. Yeah, and here's what I think you were getting at, which I would completely agree with. A, even, a typical evangelical response to a social justice movement would be, well, we just got to get them saved. Right, like, mm-hmm. why are you worrying about their environment? Why are you worrying about those kids not having food to eat? Why are you worrying worrying about those kids not having parents? Why are you worrying about those kids not having health care? We yeah. just got to get introduce them to Jesus, and if that's if that happens, let's move on and get the next ones. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I literally heard my old pastor say those exact words. <laughs> yeah, uh, people would argue about other various things, and uh, he'd be like, "Oh, let's just focus on what really matters." Yeah, that's been some of the comments. Uh, some some of the things that I've seen coming out of some of my evangelical friends in response to, to recent racial protests, the, the this uprising, trying to do something, it, the, the response is, why are, why aren't we seeing the gospel mentioned here? Like we should be mentioning the gospel protests that that aren't uh, that don't have the gospel message embedded in them are are useless and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and it, it's of the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I have trouble putting. Uh, wrapping my head around how the gospel could be extricated from the yeah. advocacy for the poor and the powerless, but it, but it seems like that's a, a division that's been really cleanly made yeah. in a widespread way. And it gives, you a, it gives you a sense of what that kind of evangelical must mean by the gospel if it's not already present in that kind of service and that kind of social activism then what is the additional thing that they think the gospel is that's missing from that exchange and it seems to me it's something cognitive. It's, it's a matter of what people believe, what propositions they have assented to. And if that's what it means, then that's a thoroughly unbiblical way of thinking about faith. Yeah, it's probably about where they go when they die, too. Like that's, sure, if sure. That, oh, that's yeah. the, yeah. But, the, but the thing that, that decides that for, for many, many evangelicals is what you believe. <laughs> uh, I heard a, a philosopher of religion one time kind of snarkily say, it's almost like when you get to heaven, God is going to put a little hat on you with a little meter on it. He called it a doxastoscope. It's something that measures the level of your belief. <laughs> and if, if, the, you know, if the needle pings the right thing, then you get let in or something, which is absurd when you put it that way. But that really does seem to be the basis of most evangelicals' beliefs about what it takes to be saved. So it's a matter of doctrinal assent. Now, to be fair to evangelicals, I would say 
interpretation or the translation that we've been given of the Apostle Paul, particularly in the book of Romans and many other places, mm. would in Galatians, would lead us to believe that belief is everything, right? So like mm. to be fair to them, you have to you have to look those those verses and those texts in the eye and say yeah. what's is there something bigger going on? So I sure. I think belief actually does matter in mm. in in some way to God. I think God really loves it when we put our faith and trust in him. But what, where I said the translation is usually when Paul says faith in Christ, it's the original Greek is usually faithfulness to Christ, right? Yeah. And that's totally different. That means I can, have, I can have feeble faith that's struggling to actually really cognitively put the dots together. I can, I can be having mm-hmm. a hard time in doubting, but still be faithful to Christ in my life. That's a yeah. very big difference. So this to me is another irony of evangelical biblical scholarship, because it seems to me... Like, I agree with you that on the surface, it would make sense how they got there to the belief is everything kind of view. Mm -hmm. But they got there through poor exegesis. They got there through ignoring superior biblical scholarship, which would have told you that, you know, English translations of the word belief are not adequate for the Greek pistis or pisteuon or whatever. Um, This is not what they meant, right? And so if you, you know, if you read Paul in an English translation, it's easy to come away. You're right. It's easy to come away with the view that without belief, you know, your your eternal security is is not there. But when you recognize that Paul didn't really think of belief in the same way that we do, nor did Jesus, the whole foundation of that kind of gives way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can, I've been in evangelicalism long enough that I can put on the hat and really quickly think in those ways and, and feel that defensiveness that, that I think has to be felt when we look at the reality that, like going back to the example of the protesters, if if there's a world out there that's advocating for justice more than the church is, for the church to come along, if if that's the if that's the gospel, if advocacy for the oppressed is is part of the gospel, and that's happening better outside of the church, as the church comes along, it's like trying to sell ocean water on the beach. Like we have, we have, <laughs> yeah. it, it's more expensive because we're going to ask something of you, yeah. um, as you, as you join this movement. And we have literally nothing to offer hmm. that isn't already present, uh, outside of the church. So the defensiveness is, yeah. uh, I think uh, it's a response to what's perceived as a position of, um, it's a perilous position. It's a weak position. Hmm. I can't sell this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You get no argument from me. So, Randy, you're, you're a pastor of what you used to confidently call an evangelical church. I did, yep. So has that changed for you? What, what, is, what has been your experience? In fact, for both of you, because I know you both have extensive experience in the evangelical church world. Can you just describe for our listeners what that experience was like and why you are where you are now? Yeah. And I'll say back to you, Kyle, I feel like you've held on to the evangelical label only because we as a church have. Hmm. For, for the last is that probably, fair? yeah, for the last three or four years, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Which is very honoring of you, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just more work to not use the, <laughs> use the label. <laughs> yeah. You have to explain what you mean now. Yeah. 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 I mean, it I, I think... a lot of awkward conversations. <laughs> yeah. So I've been a pastor for, uh, for about almost 14 years. In September, we started Brew City Church in September of, man, I think 2006. It was a year after we got married, my wife and I. And at those moments, I really didn't have a whole lot of qualms with evangelicalism by name or the tribe, right? I, even then, I was still 
tried to prophetically speak out against the overtly political nature of it. I've been uncomfortable with that since I was in middle school, to be honest with you, and confronted Mm -hmm. by it. So there's things that I fought against early in my pastoral life, career, calling, whatever you want to call it. But in the last probably 10 years, and especially probably four or five, I've grown increasingly uncomfortable with the label. And in the last couple of years have really actually, um, I dread when people ask me, I don't dread what people ask me what I do. I don't mind saying that I'm a pastor, but I dread the following question, which is always, what kind of church do you pastor? Mm-hmm. That question I absolutely dread because by and large, they easily write me off when they hear I'm an evangelical pastor. Or they easily put me in a box. They easily label me as conservative Republican, Trump supporter, homophobic, very homophobic, judgmental. He thinks that I'm going to hell no matter what. There's, there's all these things that like, as soon as I say evangelical pastor, I think subconsciously and even consciously, people put together these little things that go off that says, he's judging you as we speak. He's not a safe person. He's, he's, he's got an agenda. And s- since that's been happening in the last five, six years or so, I've become extremely uncomfortable for me personally as an evangelical. And then something happened to me a couple, maybe a little more than a year ago, one Easter morning on Easter is a big deal for guys like me, right? We our, our buildings are packed. People are ready for us to be inspired and the worship is, is beautiful and it's, it's a fun time. And I just remember, I remember driving in to Sunday service and I'd take the same way every time going down I-94 here in Milwaukee. And I remember thinking there's like three times as many cars this morning as normal. That struck me. I, I know how many cars there are going to be, what the feel is on a normal Sunday morning. And there were easily triple the amount of cars on the road. And that told me something. And then we have all these people in the, in the building and we pack it out and it's, it's wild times. And instead of being super pumped by that and super excited by that, I was disturbed by it because it just told me what's keeping these folks from being here the other 51 weeks of the year, right? Hmm. And what I realized was maybe it's our label. Maybe it's that as long as we're, we're calling ourselves evangelical, we're actually making ourselves off limits to a bunch of people who might find what we bring beautiful, who might find what we bring life-giving and eye-opening and surprising. But because we have this tribe and this name over us of evangelicals, they'll write us off and never step foot through our doors. And that is the tipping point for me. I don't mind being looked at as a... I don't mind being looked at poorly by other people. I can explain my way out of that. I do mind when our label affects the witness of the gospel, when our label in our tribe actually compromises the witness of Christ, that's, that's, a, that's a non-starter for me. It can't happen. And so since, since then, I've been processing and I've just gotten more comfortable with being the annoying voice in the room. I still have evangelical friends. Our church networks are evangelical. My peers and closest friends in the ministry are evangelical, but I'm no longer comfortable calling myself evangelical or calling Bruce City Church evangelical. Now, I'm not the only one who gets to say what Bruce City Church is. There's Mm -hmm. 250 people in a leadership team that gets to do that together, but I just refer to us as a Christian church, Mm non-denominational, following Jesus, um, because I'm tired of beautiful people who might be able to hear something beautiful be off limits to it because of our title and our tribe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of 
when people ask me what I do, and I'm dreading when they ask me what kind of pastor, what kind of church I pastor, here's just a, a, a conversation that sticks out to me. I'm, I love cooking, and um, somehow that got out to my kids, my boys' Cub Scout camp, and they recruited me as the co- camp cook for winter camp, which is just cooking a lot of below average, you know, food for a bunch of kids who don't really care about what it tastes like. It's really fun for a cook. But so I'm cooking, and then one of the other dads come in. His name's Ed. He's a great guy. He's a Catholic. He, um, he lives in the same area as I do. I can tell he cares about social justice a lot. And we start talking about politics, and um, he's liking where this is going and everything. And then he starts asking what I do. And I could, as soon as he started hinting at talking about what I do, because we were talking about what he does instead, I was panicking because I knew I was 100% confident of what his reaction would be. And so he asked me, what do you do? I'm, I'm a pastor. And, I, you know, you always get that little, like, eyebrow raise, like, oh, you're a pastor. Hmm. Yep, I'm a pastor. He goes, what, what kind of church do you pastor? And inside, I'm <laughs> just panicked. And I go, well, I'm an evangelical church, but it's a different kind of evangelical <laughs> church. We we really care about social justice, and we really we we we, we love we're we're pretty progressive for an evangelical ch- mm. church. I had to put on so many disclaimers, and I didn't even let him pause or let him say <laughs> anything before I went into the, all those disclaimers, because I wanted to ho- crawl into it under a table and hide because. I was embarrassed of my tradition. I knew what he would think of it, and I knew that he was about to write me off, and so I felt like I had to save it in the moment. That's a really rough affiliation to, to, to take just because that's what we've been given. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like I've got to justify myself and excuse myself in my church that I love dearly and I think is following in the way of Jesus. But now with most interactions, I have to actually be embarrassed and excuse our, us because of the name that we have that's being trashed by the rest of our tribe and family. Not mm-hmm. the rest, but a, lot, a large part of it. Mm-hmm. That's a problem for me. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. like most things, it comes down to, uh, is this a, a liability or is this, is this an asset? Is this, Absolutely. There's yeah. a cost mm-hmm. and benefit, and the cost to saying you're an evangelical is very high. It's just growing. grown and grown. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we first started, it was a little bit of a liability. We had a lot of ex-evangelical people who would be, young people who would be like, okay, I'm done with the evangelical church, but I can, I can hang with you guys. You know, like mm-hmm. we meet in warehouses and got to sweep up cigarette butts from the, you know, the party that was here the night before. I can do this here. But since those early days, it's just exponentially grown to be a bigger and bigger liability to now, like you're saying, Elliot, it's just not worth it, I don't think. Um, If I actually care about the testimony of Jesus and the gospel, it's not worth it. Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Story Hill BKC for their support. Story Hill BKC is a full menu restaurant and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Story Hill BKC is a full-service liquor store featuring growlers of tap available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit StoryHillBKC.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Story Hill BKC, and if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's StoryHillBKC.com. So, Elliot... You have an interesting history with evangelicalism. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it was my, my whole context. I, I grew up a pastor's kid within an evangelical free church, like the full EFCA 
thing in and, rural America, no less. In rural America, this this is this is a badge of honor. Like we're we're evangelicals because we mm-hmm. care about uh, propagating the gospel in the world. And so I don't know what all of those other denominations who aren't evangelicals are doing, but I, like obviously <laughs> we've got it right. <laughs> I questioned the label until I saw it politically associated, and and even then it's been this long like, kind of this progression of of starting to understand more and more that this is something that's not. Uh, it, I can't, when I say I'm an evangelical, that doesn't actually describe what I, what I mean or what it, I, what it meant in my, in my context, uh, in my, in my origins. And so it, it's, it hasn't felt like any major cost to me to, to drop it. It's not like I'm try, I have to make a decision on behalf of a church or this, this isn't something that, um, I, I'm really bought into aside from my parents' tradition, frankly. And so, mm-hmm evangelicalism uh, as as i see it now uh, as it's as it's become politically aligned and and as i've seen the responses of um of of those who would overtly call themselves evangelical christians and and who who wear that on their sleeve and then i see uh the the open the the racism or the Mm -hmm. if if not if not openly it's the 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 fear of the other the defensiveness this fear it seems to be this dominating characteristic as as we look at um immigration or even even at other denominations at at those who who we could look at and identify as as others within the bride of christ it's there's this um this sense that that they don't have it right and we do Mm -hmm. i i don't know when it happened but i i know i can't call myself an evangelical now and it's it's been i think in the last two, three years within the current administration, perhaps, that, that I finally had mm-hmm. to make that break once and for all. Yeah. And what about you, Kyle? What's your process been recently? So I I just sort of de facto became an evangelical because um, when I was a teenager, my parents switched from the kind of liberal mainline denomination we were a part of to the Southern Baptist Convention. But I didn't have any idea what that meant. And so we were just suddenly evangelicals, but I had no context for that or anything. I couldn't have distinguished it from what I'd known prior to that point. Um, And then when I was in college, I had a a Pentecostal experience. I got involved with a bunch of uh, a campus ministry of a bunch of Pentecostals. I didn't know they were Pentecostals, but they were. Uh, And then sort of they sneakily, you know, baptized me in the Holy Spirit. Kind of like that scene in Nacho Libre where you just sneak up on you and you're baptized. And so then I was Pentecostal, which is also a kind of evangelicalism, at least in the United States. But again, I didn't know that. So I didn't become aware, really, of being a, an evangelical until I got to graduate school, I suppose. And at least it wasn't really on my radar. And then suddenly, you know, I'm surrounded by a bunch of atheists and a bunch of Catholics and some mainline Protestants that are very, very liberal. And I realized that I'm the peculiar one, <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> that they view evangelicalism as, <clears throat> as kind of backwards, as um, a kind of a punchline, really, socially, mm-hmm. and, and particularly from the, from the perspective of scholarship. It was just not taken seriously at all. And I had thought that we were like at the pinnacle of, <laughs> of Christian scholarship. I was very, in, at the time, I was very into apologetics, which we can talk about on a later date. And so... You definitely get this sense within that kind of world, that kind of space, that evangelicals often see themselves as the cutting edge of scholarship, especially when mm-hmm. it comes to the Bible. 
and outside of that world, they're almost entirely ignored. So there are you know, a handful of exceptions here and there. Uh, evangelical scholars who were educated at reputable institutions, and so they make a name for themselves in scholarship. But you can't, when you read their scholarly work, you can't really tell they're evangelical so much. Mm-hmm. But like within the umbrella of evangelicalism, you think, oh, we have all the smartest people, all the best experts, all the best biblical scholars, all the best, you name it. And then outside of it, it's viewed as like this kind of fringe niche thing that's a little behind behind history in the wrong side. I mean, of you've history. seen Ken Ham's arc, though. Like yeah. that, you, you can't. <laughs> so deny I, that I grew up in Kentucky, <laughs> and as you know, just a couple hour drive from where I grew up, and I have relatives who still are very into that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so um, for me, my movement out of evangelicalism coincided with my movement out of what I would call uh, second-rate scholarship. I'm not trying to offend any evangelicals here, but that's just kind of how it happened. But then I, I, I <laughs> Too met late you. for that, buddy. <laughs> Is that um, I met you, and I love you, and I love everybody at this church, and so um, that's the label that was used. And so if I would if I would meet somebody and they asked me what church I went to, I would say, we're a progressive evangelical church. Right, right. And then they'd probably ask what that meant, and I can explain, you know. We're evangelical in these distinctives, but we also like black people, and we don't hate gay people, and we don't think that transgender people aren't human, and blah, 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 blah. But now I'm very relieved to hear that I don't have to make that qualification anymore. There you go. <laughs> I can just church. say, we're a Christian church in Milwaukee. <clears throat> so we've, we've kind of been skirting this a little bit, some of the things that have driven us out of evangelicalism. Let's just name some things, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. What are... Randy, from your perspective, what are the main dangers or the main problems with evangelicalism that have forced you to decide that you can no longer use the label? Mm-hmm. I mean, this might take a while. The rampant homophobia is a major one. It haunts me that our tribe, or maybe even we can say now former tribe, has made a large people group feel like God doesn't love them because mm-hmm. Christians don't love me. God thinks I'm terrible because Christians obviously think I'm terrible. God doesn't want anything to do with me because Christians don't want anything to do with me. And that's by and large evangelicals, but there's some in the other other traditions as well. But that's mostly evangelical. I think mm-hmm. the the stat is if you ask non-believers, young non-believers, what they think of when they think of evangelicals, 91% of them say homophobia. That's mm-hmm. a problem to me because those are people that have the, gay people have the image of God on them. They bear the Imago Dei. It, which makes makes them gives them unsurpassable worth and value, as as Greg Boyd likes to say. Mm-hmm. That's a problem for me. So homophobia is one of them. Judgmentalism is one of them. This us versus them mentality that evangelicals thrive off of is a problem for me because I don't find any of that in Christ in Jesus when we when we talk about the gospels. The political stuff is a problem for me. Here's here's it's not just the political stuff. If if evangelicals were just mostly Republican, I wouldn't care. Hmm. That wouldn't be that big of a deal for me. But here's the big deal, is, and this has happened, I think, mostly in the last decade, is what many evangelicals have done without knowing it is they've, they've let their theology be influenced by their p- political ideology. And that is a scary thing that I've noticed, that hmm. when it comes to things like race, racism and things of race and inequality are completely, to me, kingdom things. And I'm not saying that they don't have political 
outcomes, which they do. But for me, it's how you feel about equality, how you feel about race and racism. That is a completely kingdom of God issue. But because we've got, gotten so entrenched in the evangelical church in the more conservative way of thinking, now anytime you talk about race, and I can say this from experience, loads and loads of it, that when you talk about race, you've got to actually cringe because you're going to make you're going to make a lot of the room mad because you're talking about race. That means you're a liberal. That's why mm-hmm. many churches, right? Like as as we think about the rioting that's happening, the protests that's 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 been happening, and why so many evangelical leaders have said nothing about it. I can tell you firsthand. Mm-hmm. I've talked to these guys. I know they're scared out of their mind to do it because they know that if they do, they're going to be seen as liberal, progressive. You know heretics, and they're going to lose a bunch of their church because they're going to think you're getting too political when really you're just walking in the way of Jesus. I can't take that anymore. Like, I'm not going to be willing to, to compromise the gospel for the sake of these people who say they love the gospel. And that's my last one that I'll say that it's just this one of the straws that broke the camel's back is that this people, evangelicals, and I'm sorry I'm being so hard on you evangelicals now, it's us. I still, I still like in many ways see us as family. Hmm. Um, but this group of people who say they hold the gospel so highly, the gospel coalition we have, we got all these gospel-y things. This group of people who says who say they care about the gospel so much, this is an extreme statement, but I'm going to say it because I've thought it through and I really believe it. Evangelical Christians who say they hold the gospel so highly just might be the biggest danger to the gospel of Jesus Christ of any people group in the world right now. Hmm. I really think that evangelicals, again, who say they care so much for the gospel are a danger to the gospel and to the testimony of Christ himself. They're letting Jesus be lumped in with this judgmental, homophobic, angry, us versus them, tribal movements, and everybody seeing the gospel as such. That is, for me, that's grounds for divorce. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, have, I have a really hard time even considering that kind of evangelicalism at a, a genuine expression of Christianity. There's a, mm-hmm. a political commentator, I won't name him because I don't want to necessarily recommend his work, but in, he just doesn't even refer to that as Christianity. He calls it Christianism. Sure, that's good. Pseudo-Christianity. And I've heard similar other things, like there's a biblical scholar I respect a lot who just calls it the American civil religion. <laughs> doesn't doesn't even good. use the word Christianity for it, because it's just so... It's so antithetical to what you see in the New Testament. I mean, you, yeah. there's nothing about the Sermon on the Mount that's consistent with that kind of rampant, you know, us-first mentality, uh, where it's all about yeah. grasping and maintaining power at the exclusion of, of others. Yeah, you. I mean, speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, as a good Jesus follower, wouldn't you think that if you find yourself having to qualify and put asterisks and conditions on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus... Mm-hmm formative teaching about what what God is like, doesn't that make you think, man, I I should think of my way through where I've gotten to in my faith journey? Mm -hmm. That's just the fact that more people don't consider that. Because I've heard, how many evangelicals have the three of us heard who put asterisks on the Sermon Mm -hmm. on the Mount, who explain it away? Mm -hmm. How can you not be, how can you not be uncomfortable with that? I don't understand that. Yeah. Have I hit them all, or do you guys have other issues with evangelicalism since we're taking the gloves off here? I mean, mine are maybe predictably more... Evangelicalism has, in my experience, a real hang-up with being intellectually respectable. 
Uh, they have a this, volatile relationship with academia, yeah, right? I, I think this goes, well, yeah, I mean, this probably goes back to the foundation of sort of American fundamentalism and the sorts of things that they were reacting against. And they they started to form this idea that there's a an intellectual elite at the, the big universities mm-hmm. that has it out for them. That yep. Liberal agenda. Yeah, the, the liberal kind of, but like a hidden kind of, uh, I don't know, conspiratorial kind of thing that, you know, to, to get a position at one of these big universities, you have to somehow be liberal or not take the Bible seriously or something like that. Rather than seeing the fact that, you know, most academics are more liberal, rather than seeing that as a reflection of the effect of of critical inquiry. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they see it, they see it, they take it kind of personally. And so they, they become insular and they do a kind of very cult like thing. I'm not saying all evangelicals are in a cult, but there are some pretty stark similarities between how evangelical scholarship often works and how cults often work. They kind of separate themselves from the larger quote unquote mainstream society. Wow. Uh, they build their own institutions they teach their adherents to distrust the experts mm-hmm. and the sources of information in the Sheesh. mainstream. Uh, and then they give them worked out explanations of why the mainstream sees things the way that they do, so that when their adherents encounter mainstream expertise and whatever, they have a, they have a ready way to explain it away. They don't have to take yeah. it seriously because it's already been explained for them by their religious authority. Um, oh, and so, man. you know, the leaders within the bubble are touted as the best in the world. And, you know, they're probably smarter than the average layperson for sure. And so when the layperson goes out into the world and meets other experts, they can't tell the difference. They can't tell, you know, who's a genuine expert, who isn't. And they've been told to distrust those other ones. Uh, and so it's just sort of this self-reinforcing cycle thing. And what you get is this really insular and really, really overconfident kind of theology mm-hmm. that the outside world views as a joke and inside it you can't understand why it's viewed as a joke so here's a little microcosm of what I mean so um, we don't have to talk at length about this issue but it's just a good example um, you mentioned the ark thing earlier uh, so I was you know I grew up in a place in an area part of the country where young earth creationism which is the view that the earth is six to ten thousand years old and mm-hmm. they get that date from a particular reading of the Bible. It's just taken for granted. That's It's just in the soil almost. I mean, I, I didn't know anyone growing up who didn't take that view. And if you look at the polls, a shocking number of Americans still take that view. And if you, if you talk to a pastor in that kind of culture about that specific issue, probably they're going to point you, if you have questions, they're going to point you to one of a handful of quote-unquote creation science organizations. And then you're going to go and you're going to read their material and you're going to get this idea that this is just obvious, that anybody who was rational and honest would take this view. And then you you might wonder, if you're a thoughtful person, well, then how come all the scientists, how come everybody outside of our community, how come they don't take that view? And the answer, the very ready explanation is they're dishonest or they're sinful or they're or somehow out to get Yeah, the you. devil is deceitful. Agenda. Yeah. Like they can't help it. Satan yeah. just has them. Their minds have been clouded, right? Mm-hmm. 
And it never occurs to these, uh, seemingly anyway, the Ken Ham types, right? Seemingly never occurs to them that maybe the problem might lie on the other side of that equation. It's just an extreme mm -hmm. overconfidence uh, about what they claim to know. And that's something that as a philosopher obviously really, really rubs me the wrong way. And, and, and from that, you get this sense that evangelicals feel like they are the best or maybe even the only representation of the church because nobody else understands it quite as well. Mm -hmm. Our interactions with anybody on the outside are going to be mediated through conversion. We're trying to get you to think like us. And if you don't, well, we have to sever ties. Yep. Now let's be clear. We're talking about extremes here, right? So many evangelicals would say, we're the only show in town, we're the only true believers. That's, that's language that many evangelicals use. But I have many evangelical friends and peers and colleagues who would never in the million years sure. say that. I have sure. evangelical pastor friends who, you know, they have to, unfortunately, they feel like they have to hide from their church that they do the Catholic hours every day. And mm. beautiful because they've resonated with that liturgical yeah. form of prayer in, in profound ways and mm -hmm. who profoundly honor other traditions. They just find themselves in the evangelical one. There are plenty of good evangelicals. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's just the bad ones are so damn loud and so dang weighty that they kind mm -hmm. of just tilt the scales. And the world around us sees those ones. They don't see the thoughtful, right. you know, kind, gracious, loving evangelicals. They see the... The, the crazy uncle evangelicals. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, speaking from my academic perspective, the, those, what you call the crazy uncles, they are still largely the gatekeepers at most of the evangelical schools. Sure. And those schools have a lot of money and a lot of influence. And, you know, there are exceptions. And I, I myself have quite a few friends who are evangelical academics, and, you know, I respect them, and they would not be accurately described by what I was just talking about. Yeah. But for me, at the end of the day, I, it comes down to this question. Is there enough that is good and distinctive about evangelicalism to justify ignoring all of that? Yeah. And at yeah. the end of the day, to me, the answer is no, because everything that's good about it can be found somewhere else. Uh, all, the, all the four things we talked about, you know, all mm -hmm. the, the great things that we like about its history. I mean, that stuff isn't unique to evangelicalism. It's also available in Catholicism. It's also available in mainline Protestant Christianity. It's available in orthodoxy, you know? Yep. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I would say why I'm not, why I was for so long uncomfortable with jumping out of evangelicalism is because I didn't see an, what for me would be a viable alternative. Mm -hmm. I love Catholics, but I'm not yeah. interested in being one. i I'm, I love Episcopalians. I'm not interested in being one. I love the Methodists. I'm yeah. not interested in, in, in being one. That's been the problem for me. I haven't seen something for us to land in, for me to land in. And that's where, though, as in conversation with some of our church leaders, it's just been, what if we just call ourselves Christians? What if we just mm. kind of hearken back to the early church and call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus? And we don't have to have a label or a new thing or a, an old tradition to jump into. We can just follow that old tradition that is following the way of Jesus. Now, so, <laughs> play devil's advocate just a little bit, if that's okay. So, yeah. like, younger me would say, well, isn't that just kind of, either, isn't that just sort of avoiding some important questions, or maybe it's just taking a stance on some important questions without admitting which stance you're taking? So, for example, a non-denominational church, right? There's bunches of non-denominational megachurches, for example, within evangelicalism. And without fail, 
the pastors and the leaders at that autonomous, non-denominational megachurch. They have opinions on theological mm-hmm. questions. And if you were to write those opinions out, you could probably match those opinions up to one of the main already existing denominations, which makes you wonder, well, why not just call yourself that, right? Why, why separate yourself from that rich history? So what do you, I don't know, what do you, what do you think about that? Is there an importance in attaching yourself to a historical tradition that you actually do line up most closely with in your theology? Or is it best to just say, we're just Christian? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think, first of all, as you were talking about non-denominational, it made me think again that we might have to also drop that non-denominational title because that's what people see on the internet. And as soon mm-hmm. as people in our culture and world see non-denominational, they in- instantly think evangelical. Yeah. That's a, that, non-denominational is actually a denomination now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's another problem for us that we'll have to f- f- work our way through. But what I would say is we're not creating something new. We're actually trying to be something a lot more ancient. And I would also say just because we don't identify as Methodist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or, you know, Episcopal, Catholic, we see all of that within our family, even evangelicals, to be honest with you. Like, they're the crazy uncles, but we, they're still part of the family. You can't get rid of them, right? Our family is not defined by that tribe that we identify with or that denomination. Christianity is this rich, huge tent that has all sorts of traditions within it, all sorts of cultures within it. I mean, Anglicanism is different in Africa than it is in the UK, than it is in the US. That's just the beauty of Christianity is this, this litany of voices and this diversity of, of ways of going about it. And that's the, that's the messiness of it as well. But that, I think that's still beautiful. And so I would say we identify as family with all of those traditions. We're just walking in the way of Jesus in this way that we feel like is most honoring to the Gospels in our context right here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hmm. What would your old self say to that? I, I think I'm okay with that, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not my old Even self young anymore, Kyle? so who cares? <laughs> I'm okay All with right. it now. Yeah. I liked young Kyle too, but I like you better now. Well, here's what my current self would say about it. I'm not necessarily convinced anymore that church bodies ought to define themselves according to what they're, what they're doctrinally committed to. So that, hmm. to me, mm-hmm. now seems like a mistake. And, and mm-hmm. that is the distinction between the traditional denominations, its doctrinal commitments. So if we're trying yep. to move more towards something along the lines of our practice and being unified despite our differences, then I'm all about that. Yep. So as a formerly evangelical pastor, what would you say is the future, if you had to predict? What does the future of, of evangelicalism look like? Mm-hmm. I honestly think that we're seeing the not even the first fruits, but we're, we're into this journey. We're past the introduction to it. We're past the, the first couple of hours of it, if, if we're taking a road trip, into the evangelical church turning into a very niche Christian circle. I, I look at my kids, and my kids, my oldest is 13, my youngest is eight, and I look at my two oldest in particular, and I can tell you that my daughter, if, if the church doesn't talk about race and equality, when she, in, from, in seven years from now, when she's going to be making this her own, she will want nothing to do with it. And I think 
it seems like the church, the evangelical church, the extremes of it especially, are more and more disassociating themselves with anything that has to do with racial equality and justice. And I can tell you my daughter won't want anything to do with it, even, at, even as a pastor's daughter. My son, who loves science and is obsessed with science and biology, if he has to believe that the earth is six to 10,000 years old, he will not want anything to do with it. I can see it in him now as an 11-year-old, mm. and I guarantee you as an 18, 20, 25-year-old, he'll see that as irrelevant and won't want anything to do with it. So I think that's where evangelicalism is going, because I don't see much changing in that regard. So I see it as a sinking ship, and then I see maybe evangelicalism goes from this big Titanic ship that has hit the glacier. It's all, like that already happened. Now we're in the process of going down, and I think evangelicalism will turn into lifeboats. It'll just turn into a smaller niche kind of inbred group of people. And by inbred, I mean, no one's going to want to come into evangelicalism on his own. They're, they're going to have to keep it going by having more babies. <laughs> it, kind of like yeah. Mormonism. It, sorry for Mormon friends, but it's going to be just ironically, this, Mormons are in many ways more progressive today than evangelicals are, but that's a, that's a separate episode. <laughs> yeah. But I know from having Mormon friends, like Mormons are encouraged to have more and more babies yeah. because that's the way that they're growing the church. And I think that's the way the evangelical church will get by and large, the outside world will see it as kind of you described it, which haunts me, Kyle. But, and I've never heard anybody compare the evangelical church to a cult, but it fits the bill. And I think that's where we're headed. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a evangelicalism as a, as a movement, too. It's, it's on the move. And so this, this feeling, this need that, that we need to uh, separate ourselves from it, you know, some of that is, is us undocking, but there's, some of it is just we're, we're getting off stop the bus we need to get off and this thing is going to keep going uh, further and further down this journey and, and it seems like it's condensing towards you know it's it's that that generic distrust of uh, mainstream science like that was mm-hmm. always part of my experience and, and the, the the way that uh, i was taught but for that to to crystallize into like I, I never knew how to say fake news like it's so it's so quick and so easy and it, it's applicable to everything and so so now there, there are these simple, uh, simple ways to write off things that are outside of uh, our comfort zone. And it seems like it's just, it's just getting uh, narrower and narrower and more and more crystallized as it gathers around, some of it's gathering around political power, some of it, it just seems to be around, around language. And as, as the camp gets smaller, uh, the circle's tightening. And yeah, so it, it feels like the, the movement itself is on a trajectory um, and Randy, I think that's what you're describing too, but it's it's not like it's this static thing that we're walking away mm-hmm. from either. Yep. Yeah. And I will say, I think you'll see more and more churches like us have to have this moment of introspection of, can we stay tied to this sinking ship? I, I, I guarantee you, we're not the first that's having this conversation, but we're among the first, I think. And I guarantee mm-hmm. you, there's going to be more churches just like us who who have that moment where they say, where they're counting the cost for the gospel. Now, I could, yeah. I would, I know for sure that more pastors, the evangelical pastors, would love to be having a conversation just like this. It's just that too much of their bottom line is tied to staying evangelical. For us, we're small enough, and we also have a progressive enough and mature enough culture that we can do this, and we probably won't lose any, if many, if any people. Other churches, other evangelical churches, especially the bigger ones, so much they'll have to cut. They would have to cut three quarters of their staff if they came out and said this. What we're saying right now—that's why they won't do it. But there's going to come a moment, I guarantee, for church after church after church to con- 
consider we might have to cut ties with evangelicalism. I think you're going to see yeah. that happening. And I think uh, what's currently happening with race and the, the George Floyd protests and everything might be the the thing a that really point. triggers that. Yeah, for, for a lot yep. of people. I've seen lots of posts on social media that say things like, especially from black friends that say things like, if your church isn't talking about this this Sunday, leave. Yep, um, if absolutely. Not. Just yesterday, I saw a post from a prominent former evangelical Twitter person has a large following on Twitter for the first time sort of telling his story about why he left the church that he did. And it was because he was black and he would talk about being black and his, you know, his church leadership explicitly said, don't do that. That, in fact, they said, uh, that's the sin of pride. Yep. And he just couldn't take it anymore. And so, yeah, I, I think this might be the tipping point for a lot of those churches and the ones that resist and hold on we'll just see a slow attrition because, mm-hmm. you know, the next generation doesn't think that way. My students don't yep. think that way. Your your children don't think that way. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you're right that there's a catalyst to some change. Uh, but when I think about the, maybe it's just the loudest fringe, but the, the individuals that, that I see still driving that movement, the, the slow attrition feels like a more realistic path. I hope I'm wrong. I, I hope I hope mm-hmm. what you're what you're saying that there that there's maybe still time that that yeah. plays out. Well, I think I do think there's a very big difference. I know there is between urban evangelicalism and then suburban evangelical evangelicalism and then rural evangelicalism. I'm in a we're part of a church network that has all three of those in it, and just the response to COVID even itself has been so telling. Where us as a very urban church are taking it very seriously. And the people in our church, we have nobody, very few people, if any, clamoring for us to reopening the minute we can, right? The suburban context, they do. They have people who mostly careful, but there are many people who are like, I'm going to go over to this other church because they opened up, you know? And then you have the rural ones who are saying, if you don't open up, you're not a real Christian because you have no faith and I'm a freedom Mm -hmm. fighter, right? And so I think there's the entrenchment of evangelicalism gets further and further and deeper yeah. and deeper the further away you go from an urban center. Yeah. I think That's that really matters. We should get an expert on the urbanization of religion and interview them. That would be fantastic. There's an episode. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to say before this, we're done with this episode that there might be some of you who are exactly where we're talking about. You're resonating with what we're talking about. You're wondering why you haven't heard this before, maybe even. Um, and you're, you've been seeing it as an evangelicalism, evangelicalism or nothing kind of situation, or you've r- resonated with where we are with don't really fit in the Catholic world, don't really fit in high church, but certainly need to be done with evangelicalism. And so you're just getting, re- getting ready to pitch it all. I get you. I have many friends like that. I know where, where that is. I want to encourage you, you don't have to leave the way of Jesus because you're leaving evangelicalism. That's just, you don't have to do it. Jesus is beautiful on his own, with or without this tribe that has maybe made him look ugly. Just look back at Jesus again. Look at the Gospels in their purest sense of what they are. And there are people like out there like that that you'll resonate with. There are other churches in other cities who bring that beautiful gospel uniqueness and richness. Look for it, but don't give up on Jesus because you're ready to give up on evangelicals. Please. It's hard to overemphasize that. Mm-hmm.
that's that's been the the saddest part for me about the decline of evangelicalism well i guess there's it's it's the two two sides of the saddest part it's seeing uh, my my sunday school teachers my uh you know my mentors my relatives who who have followed evangelicalism into a really dark place that it is mm-hmm. now and then on the other side to know my friends who who couldn't find their place in the church who felt outcast because of their orientation or because of their color um, or who just couldn't be a part of something that was so grounded in fear and hatred. And, and so to see uh, it's, it's life, but, but it all comes into stark relief in the social media feeds, seeing these two groups crying out against each other and, and yet to say, this this isn't Jesus. This isn't what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, to those friends who have left the church, there promise there's something still here. This is this there's beauty, uh, even though it's really hard to to hear that, see that sometimes over the volume of yeah. the church itself, the evangelical church itself. Yeah, and this might seem this might seem pompous, but I'm going to say it. If there's any church leaders listening, this is the real state of things. If there are evangelical pastors listening who have been restless with the evangelical movement and label, similarly to what I have, this is real. We are losing a whole demographic in they're leaving the church and they don't want anything to do with it in the future because of what our tribe has done to it. And friends, if, that's, if we're church leaders, let's be beholden to the gospel more than we are a paycheck. Hmm. I know that that's dangerous to say. I know that it's easy to say when my paycheck isn't, is, is, isn't on the line, but it could be. And I want, I, I like to hope to think that I have more integrity to the, and, and follow Jesus in a, in a, in a way that says I would, ha- I would be willing to get another job and have this be my side hustle. Cause I did that for the first five years of doing this, have this be a side hustle that I do for free because I'm so committed to the gospel. I will not let a whole generation just in the future of the church, walk out the doors because we weren't willing to say the truth. Hmm. We can do better. Yeah. I'll just add this one thing. My encouragement to people who are struggling with what kind of Christian can I be now and wondering what the church is going to look like in the future, I would say watch for the Holy Spirit. Watch Hmm. for where the Holy Spirit shows up. And you might mm-hmm. be surprised because the fruits of the Spirit have not changed, right? They're the same yes. list of things they were 2,000 years ago. And it seems to me that if you look for the evidence of God's Spirit in a community, the places where it shows up most for me right now are the marginalized. So it's mm-hmm. my suspicion that the future of an activist church is probably in the black community. It's probably in the LGBTQ community. It's probably in Native American communities. Um, so, yeah, watch, watch for the work of the Spirit. That would be my recommendation.
So I will say this much for evangelicalism, particularly the, the evangelicals that I view as um, really thoughtful and really careful and trying to do their best within perhaps not the best framework. Um, there is a kind of zealotry that goes along with being an evangelical. Maybe it's rooted in its history and the, you know, the Wesleyan tradition, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. But they're, they're really committed and passionate about people experiencing God. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. even if it's couched in some some unfortunate language, even if it uh, is based on some, you know, shoddy expertise, even if it doesn't necessarily have the most progressive social view. Uh, evangelicalism has a fervor to it, a passion to it, mm-hmm. that if we could translate it to a more progressive outlook, could could do a lot of good socially. So I'll, Absolutely. I'll, I'll, give, them, I'll give them that much. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of evangelicalism and what it's done to... to sully the gospel, I will say that evangelical churches are responsible for a lot of the relief efforts happening around the world in third world nations right now. Whether or not I agree with Samaritan's Purse's theology, which I absolutely do not, and whether or not I agree with all their methodology, which I absolutely do not, you'll see, I remember seeing five years ago when the refugee crisis happened that Samaritan's Purse was standing on the Greek Isles with resources and supplies for re- refugees fleeing their current situation. And I, that, that was a convicting moment for me. I've done plenty of slamming of Franklin Graham and will continue to do so. Mm-hmm. But good on him for, for being there, being the yeah. first to greet these refugees with resources and care and love. That's, yeah. We can't deny that. That also reminds me of Chuck Colson in his uh, prison ministry, if you remember that. Absolutely. Somebody who I would passionately disagree with about the relationship between politics and faith. Um, But you cannot deny that, you know, the man did a thing that other other Christians were unwilling to do. Yep. And many evangelical churches now have a prison ministry. Yeah. Not to mention all the good focus on the family has done. (laughs) (laughs) We took a family vacation. (laughs) Focus on the family. Oh, yeah. James Dobbs. Did you go to the, the Adventures in Odyssey? There's a slide oh, yeah. that goes outside oh, yeah. the building. We did. Because <laughs> yeah. the, the show, what was it called? Um, Adventures in Odyssey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Mr. Whitaker, right? He was the... Uh, oh, I still love that. <laughs> we really identified with that. I can't I, throw out Mr. Whitaker. I read all the little books. Yeah. I never experienced that as a kid, but we, we started having our kids listen to those just because they're cute and fun. Mm-hmm. And I'm down with Mr. Whitaker yeah, and the Adventures in Odyssey. Yeah, I remember let's, being let's sweet get... and fun, and I don't remember any of the theological content. And I I don't know how much uh, Dobson actually ha- had oversight of that, but everything I remember that was directly connected to him now seems to me deeply damaging. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. But I also know there was like some some disagreement within the ministry, like between him and some of the leadership that took over when he got a little older, because I used to read their, um, they had, they did a movie reviews for, mm-hmm. for people that were afraid of R rated movies and content. Um, so fun. But they, they, they presented themselves as actual reviews that then also just mentioned, here's the stuff that you can look. So it wasn't just, here's how many naked scenes there are. It was an actual, supposedly like artistic review of the whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember they gave a positive review. I don't remember the movie though. It was a movie that I liked, and I didn't think it was even close to the line. And then Dobson stepped in and was like, nope, this is a shit movie. 
no one should watch this. It's dangerous. <laughs> and they had to like kind of apologize. For those, are, those are the reviews. Review. Those are the ones where it's like it's you know it's meant to make it so that you don't have to uh, subject your family to this stuff. But but then mm-hmm. the review reads like erotica. Is like it's like so like <laughs> that's mm-hmm, a backfire. Mm-hmm. If you if you go into yeah. like at the fifty six. Minute mark, like you can see a little bit of nip <laughs> through the shear, and suddenly all like the especially when thirteen year old boys are fast forwarding to minute fifty six. So my oh, my childhood man. experience of of focus on the family. I mean, we we lived in Colorado Springs for a while, so I've got some memories mm-hmm. of like being in the um the uh, imagination station. Uh, yeah, slipped my head for a moment. Good stuff. Uh, but uh, but then like years later. Uh, listening to, I, I actually like took out a car stereo speaker and I put it inside of my pillow at night. And so I would listen to the radio um, and like nobody else could hear it. My parents didn't know that I did it, but I wired it in. And so I would listen to um, KTIS, the Christian radio station out of the Twin Cities. And at <laughs> nine o'clock it was Chuck Swindoll. And I would kind of just like, you know, bear through that because I was, I was looking like, like it would get more interesting when focus on the family would come and like Dobson would, talk through whatever dangerous bill to allow same-sex marriage was on the docket and like what we should do and then i would i would switch down to uh to cities 97 at 10 for the love line with uh adam and dr drew nice and so then that was kind (laughs) of the sex ed portion of the evening (laughs) (laughs) which explains a lot (laughs) almost everything i know about sex came from that show Dr. Did Drew. You, did you ever listen to Dobson's actual sex ed like no curriculum? I'm surprised yeah. my parents didn't put that in front of me. This is how my dad like did the birds and the bees with me, which I was old enough <laughs> at that point that it, it didn't seem like news, but yeah, we went for a long car ride and he popped in these cassette tapes of <laughs> James Dobson. Oh goodness. <laughs> I wonder yeah. how many people had that same exact experience. Probably a lot. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Yeah, I think less of this is going to get edited out than you guys think. <laughs> I, was just, I was just thinking you just made it really... We had a nice, clean episode as far as editing, and then you just messed everything up for yourself, Elliot. Oh, it's worth it. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can find us on social media, like and share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're inclined to leave a review, we read through all of those and we love the feedback. Till next time, this has been a pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar.